Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive right into the scriptures today because I've got a long sermon, so settle in. I'm just saying. Mind you, like, you know, usually I'm good for about 40 minutes. This may be a little bit longer. But I'm just uh, praying that God will give me the words to give to you today in the position that I'm in at this time. So I give him all credit beforehand. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. We thank you and praise you for all that you do. We ask, Lord, that you'll be with us this day as we break your word and we um, are challenged by the words of Job's friends. So, Lord, help us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So, how many of you read uh, your readings this week in Job? Okay, that is absolutely great because I'm not going to read Job today. I'm not. I mean, usually I read, I'm all about reading a chapter in, in front of the church, but that would just I'd make a two-hour sermon. So, um, I, I am only an hour will be fine, right? Okay, so um, when, you, when you dive into Job, uh, we, most of us can under, sort of understand the first uh, three chapters, the prologue as it is, of, of Job. We can sort of understand what's going on. And then we get to the first responders. We get to his three friends. And so Jeremy left us at the point of Job lamenting and in despondency with what is going on in his life. And Job maintains that he's, all he's going to do is speak truth. And he speaks truth from his perspective. And he's, he's, he's wailing. And he is having a hard time. Dealing with what's going on in his life. The deaths in his family. The loss of, of um, much of, of all of, of his possessions. And he has three friends that come to him. And for the first week, they, they do great. You know why? Because they don't say anything. They just are with their friend and... Because of his grief, they don't, they don't say anything to him. They're just spending time with him. So I want you to know, because a lot of times if you look at the commentaries, if you read anything about Job, his friends get a bad rap. They really do. Just like his wife. I, Jeremy addressed that last week. But this week, his fr- if you read any of his friends are blasted, generally, by commentators. Oh, they're a bunch of jerks. Hey, these are, these are friends of Job that stop everything in their life and go to him because of what's going on with him. I think that's not a bad thing. These, these, they care. And so um, what you read this week was the, the first three responses from his friends and responses from Job. And because it's in poetry form, sometimes you read it and you go, okay, what did I just read? This is kind of a, it's a tough. You have to dig. You can't just like skim it and go, okay, that's what he said, because you can't. It's just tough. Well, I mean, if you can, then you're a better man than I. But so I spent I spent a lot of time this week on, on the study of. I chose the first of the first responders. I, I I chose Eliphaz and his response because one, he's the first one 
to, to speak. And um, in this culture, being the first to speak, you are probably the oldest and the wisest in that culture. I mean, we could probably learn from that because sometimes us young people, we speak up before the wise people speak. Sometimes when we're in men's prayer and we're having devotions and we're doing, we're doing stuff, what um, the older gentleman in our group, that's, sometimes I just need to shut up and listen, you know? And we've got a lot of wisdom in this congregation. In fact, there's a lot of wisdom from his friends, from Job's friends. They are very wise. In fact, they're so wise that um, the Apostle Paul actually quotes part of Eliphaz's message in Corinthians. So, I know that uh, Trinidad's looking at it. He's going he's to look it up. He's going to try to find it. He's going to track it down. Um, but I, I, what I want to do is I want us to... I want to Look at Eliphaz's speech. So I'm assuming you've already read it. So if you have your book, just turn to uh, Job 4 5. Job 4 and 5. And that's on January 18th. If you want to start taking notes. Because there's going to be a few notes I'm going to want you to do. Because this should be a test run for us for the rest of the the Job passages that we do. I mean, until we get to God speak. Then we can just kind of go... We know what God says, and that's true, and we do it. So there needs to be some discernment on our, point, on, our, uh, on our part. So I want us to look at this, okay? So from Eliphaz's first response to Job, I came up with six things that I think he's trying to say to Job. So I'm going to give you the six real quick, and then I'm going to analyze them. Because there's some truth to them, but then there's some, well... Because remember, God rebukes his friends at the end. He says, what you said wasn't right. But we, but we, need, but we also know they're wise and they're, they're trying to comfort things with, with, with Job, but they don't comfort him. Let me, give you, let me give you a blanket statement that I think you should know as a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay? You don't have to defend God. God's pretty good at defending himself. Okay? Also, there are places for theology and to talk about what you think God is doing, but the emergency room is not it. The funeral home is not a, the place for that, and we, we see where people can be harmed because we're trying to defend God, trying to, make, trying to answer things that are really sometimes are unanswerable. Okay, so here are the six things. Number one. Eliphaz is saying Job should act on the advice he gave to others. And that's in Job 4, 1 through 6. Number two, Eliphaz says, Job, you reap what you sow. And that's Job 4, 7 through 11. Number three, all men are worthless to God. That's Job 4, 12 through 21. Number four, Job should stop complaining. That's in Job 5, 1 through 7. Number five, Job should appeal to God. And that's Job 5, 8 through 16. And number six, Job should accept his trouble as God's discipline. And that's Job 5, 17 through 27. 
Now, if you missed all those, if I went too fast, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to them. So let's look at these things. So Eliphaz responds to Job's impassioned outbursts that we see in chapter 3. It's not really a carefully reasoned reply to Job's bitter observation. Rather, it's an attempt by Eliphaz to fit Job's discomfort or suffering into Eliphaz's view of life. So here are the points. Number one is Job should act on the advice he gave to others. In the past, Eliphaz says, Job had encouraged those who had suffered misfortune, strengthened the inadequate, supported the weak. Now Eliphaz thinks that he should follow his own advice. This is what he's saying. It is possible Eliphaz actually repeats what Job had counseled in the years of his prosperity to others. But here's the thing. It's a lot easier to give comforting advice than to act upon it. I'll repeat that. It's a lot easier to give comforting advice than to act upon it. Eliphaz issues a challenge to Job rather than responding to it. So I believe the mistake Ilfaz makes here is that he likens Job's condition to that of the people whom he advised and helped in the past. But I don't think that's right because I believe Job's loss and, st- and suffering were of st- um, staggering magnitude. In fact, Ilfaz himself had experienced nothing like Job's loss. So he is, it's a general rule, the best people to help others in a truly awful experience are those that have been through it themselves. I'd like to read an article to you that was written in the Chicago Tribune way back in 1987 to make my point. Douglas Maurer, 15 of Crevecourt, Missouri, had been feeling bad for several days. His temperature was ranging between 103 and 105 degrees, and he was suffering from severe flu-like symptoms. Finally, his mother took him to the hospital in St. Louis. Douglas was diagnosed as having leukemia. Doctors told him in frank terms about his disease. They said that for the next three years, he would undergo chemotherapy. They didn't do They didn't downplay the side effects. They told Douglas he would go bald and that his body would most likely bloat. Upon hearing this, he went into a deep depression. His aunt called at a florist to send Douglas an arrangement of flowers. She told the shop assistant that it was for her teenage nephew who had leukemia. When the flowers arrived at the hospital, they were beautiful. Douglas read the card from from his aunt. Then he took a second card, and he saw it and read it. It said, Douglas, I took your order. I was at, I work at Bricks Florist. I had leukemia when I was seven years old. I'm 22 year old, 22 year, years old now. Good luck. My heart goes out to you. Sincerely, sincerely Laura Bradley. Douglas' face lit up. And he said, oh, 
It's funny, Douglas Maurer was in a hospital filled with millions of dollars of the most sophisticated medical equipment. He was being treated by expert doctors, nurses with medical training, totally in the hundreds of years. But it was a sales girl in a flower shop, a woman making $170 a week, who by taking the time to care and by being willing to go with what her heart told her to do, gave Douglas hope and the will to carry on. It is the teacher who made mistakes and had a rough time with a difficult class who's best to sympathize and counsel a new teacher who is going through a difficult time. It is the mother who has suffered the agony of losing a child who can come alongside another bereaved parent and share the pain. Maybe, just maybe, the trouble you're going through, it's not about you. Maybe it's someone in your future with whom you can share pain and suffering with because you've been there and done that and got the t-shirt. Number two, Eliphaz tells Job, you reap what you sow. Eliphaz makes this point with great eloquence. He claims the upright are never destroyed. Those who sow trouble reap it. He likens a wicked man to a roaring, growling lion whose teeth God smashes so that it perishes for lack of prey. Let me throw you my first scripture out to you that's not in Job, that goes counter to what Eliphaz just said. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14. It says this, There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. Solomon, who we think wrote Ecclesiastes, is observing and says, how come the good get bad and the bad get good? this This is astounding. This is the whole idea from what Eliphaz and his friends come from. It's the retribution principle. You do good... Everything's going to be good. You do bad, you're going to sow it, and you're going to be something bad's going to happen to you. Now, there some, are some principles of that, and you look at the Torah, and God is very clear about it. If you follow this, things will go well for you. But it doesn't promise everything. There's still things that go on wrong. It is perhaps helpful to read another author. The author of Hebrews said this, From chapter 11, the heroes of faith chapter, starting in verse 36. Some face jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went out in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes of the ground. Despite this, many of us share Eliphaz's simplistic view. They're taken in by the prosperity gospel. A promise that financial blessing and health is the will of God for Christians. 
And that faith, positive speech, and donations to Christian ministries will always increase one's material wealth. It's very difficult to square this belief from what Jesus said. He said, Jesus came to teach men and women to lay up treasures in heaven. I believe it's possible to reap what you sow in this life, but not always. And this is one of the things that Eliphaz steps. This is not a law. This is, it happens at times, but it's not always. Any more than when a, when a farmer reaps what he sows. Sometimes he doesn't reap what he sowed. Number three, all men are worthless to God. This comes at the end of chapter four. And this is a, it's a weird passage. When you start reading chapter four, all of a sudden, Eliphaz starts talking about this spirit that came in, in front of him and was saying things. Um, it, it appears that Eliphaz witnessed some sort of uh, spirit, I believe a demon, but it scared him witless. It shook with fear, and his hair stood on end. Um, this visitor is satanic, for I'm sure that is what it was. It had a dreadful message. First of all, God's character is blackened. He is so peculiar that one of his angels makes a small mistake, they pay for it. That's what the specter says. They are mere creatures of clay who can be snuffed out as easily as an irritating moth fluttering in the candlelight. Talk about men. Their, men are, their time is short. Their deaths are unnoticed and they perish forever. That men are like tents that come tumbling down when the guide ropes are thrown off. The message here that Eliphaz repeats to Job that he received in a vision at night says that men and women are worthless to God. I don't believe that's a correct statement. You know, sadly, some Christians are afflicted with depression. And that black formless spirit would convict that sufferer of their utter worthlessness to God. And I say, not so. As a matter of fact, if we look at Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, this is what Jesus said about God. He said, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid you are worth more than many sparrows. That's the, that's that's counter to what Eliphaz is saying to Joe. Oh, men are just worthless. To God, that's not true. According to his son, Jesus. We should pay no attention to Satan and the father of lies. If God values a sparrow, he most certainly values us. We are worth more than many sparrows. Number four. Job should stop complaining. Job 5, 1 through 7. 
I, I felt this was probably the biggest challenge of my uh, study this week, is this one, this section, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And I came up with Job should stop complaining, but it's really, he's saying that Job has a foolish attitude. His cries of resentment and envy of the dead are unlike anything to arouse sympathy from Eliphaz. Eliphaz then goes on to say that he knew a fool who prospered for a time. But before long, he lost his family crops and wealth. The implication here, the implication here is that Job is a fool. Eliphaz then states troubles have a cause. They don't spring from the ground. Troubles have a cause. And so Job must be at fault. Because it's not God's fault. Eliphaz has to defend God. It must be your fault, Job. Because it's not God's. This is a very common and in my kind of an irritating attitude that we see in the church. This is one I came across in my teaching career. Tell me if you haven't heard this before. Teachers or people involved in education. It says this. There are no bad children, only problem teachers. Have you heard that? So if you were a teacher, it's like, oh, it's, it's my fault that I have a problem child in my classroom. Oh, it must be my fault. This would make me crazy. Like, no, he's just a bad kid. (laughs) (laughs) Or how about this? When a marriage breaks down, a common reaction is, well, I expect there was fault on both sides. No? This overlooks the possibility that one side might be completely innocent. Christians need to listen to Jesus. Eliphaz might say the soil can't be blamed for misfortune. But Jesus told a parable about a sower where the soil was in fact the fault that there was no growth. Here's the statement I want you to remember. Sometimes when bad things happen to us, we are not to blame. God is not to blame. Sometimes things just happen. Let's look at it this way. Was Moses to blame when the Israelites made a golden calf to worship? Was Jeremiah to blame when the Jews rejected the message that God gave him to deliver? Was Jesus to blame when his own people rejected him as Messiah? Job was not to blame for his predicament. Far from it. In God's opinion, he was a righteous man. So Eliphaz and those around were wrong. They assumed if something was going on with Job, it's because Job did something. And that God was punishing him. And that, that's just not true. Why? Because we saw the first two chapters. We know that he's not, it's not true. But yet... His friends, including Eliphaz, Job's friends, are trying to give God an out. Trying to protect his reputation. 
Got to protect God. Well, it must be you, Job. And sometimes we in the church do that. Number five, Job should appeal to God. Eliphaz urges Job to leave things to God. He needs to stop wasting his energies in bitter lamentation and just wait upon God. That's Eliphaz's answer. Now, this may appear like a very sound teaching. We'll just wait on the Lord. Perhaps some would say it bears resemblance to Jesus' teaching on anxiety when he told us here not to worry about what to eat or what to wear. If God fed the birds of the air and the poppies of the field, he would feed and clothe them if you relied on him. And yes, it sounds convincing about that, but God wants us to interact with him. He's more interested in a relationship with us than what we do. But we need to work together with him. We have to exercise caution when looking at what Eliphaz claimed God would do. It's not wise to leave everything to God. Example. God did not miraculously miraculously release the slaves in the USA and the southern states in the 1800s. It took a civil war that the North won. Only then were slaves set free. And many of the reason why there were abolitionists is because they read the Bible and they said all men are created equal. They were acting on truth from God. It was devastating what happened. But they were acting on the belief of God. But they were working it too. Today there are many poor people in countries like Kenya. And they barely survive, these people. They need the sort of help that a ministry can provide. It's the reason why we partner with Tomabungo and connect with the child. He gets these kids off the street. And feeds them. Helps them with education. He's not just waiting for God to do it. He is working with God. To achieve amazing. Principles. If, if, you, if you have the idea. Well let's just wait for God to do it. Then how can the king. In Matthew 25. Hold people responsible. For what they didn't or didn't do to him. Feeding the hungry. Visiting the sick. We have a job to do. And I think Eliphaz is just telling Job, just wait on the Lord. Is suspect at best. Number six. God should accept his Job should accept his troubles as God's discipline. He says this in verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. He does then he does not go on to explain how this thing that he's that Job's going through is somehow going to improve his character or his relationship with God. He doesn't. What does Job need to be corrected about? He didn't take his prosperity for granted. He ascribed his success to God. Job wasn't like the rich fool in the 
parable in Luke, the man who just was going to build bigger barns, secure in his own good fortune. Now, it is perfectly true that we do need from time to time to be disciplined by God. This is the message of Hebrews 12. Starting in verse 7, he says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of the spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while while they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems present at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. However, all of that is true. However, trouble isn't always God disciplining us. Job's a good example. That's far too simplistic an idea. Ray Steadman, in his commentary on Job, writes this, and I quote, Eliphaz argues from a simplistic and unrealistic theology. If you just cast yourself on God's mercy, he will restore you and everything will be fine. Do that and God will protect you and keep you safe from trouble. This, of course, is not the way the universe works. Godly people are not immune from trouble. Many people go through suffering precisely because they live godly lives. Those who think godly living makes them invulnerable to trouble are living in a fantasy world, end quote. Jesus told his disciples that if he was persecuted, they too would be persecuted. Many Christians have been persecuted to death. This is not God exercising discipline. And here's another verse. Romans 8:28 In all things God works for the good of those who love him who will be called according to his purpose. But that is not always discipline. God can use anything going on in your life to help bring about good for you. Okay? So I'm not dismissing Romans 8:28, but listen. This is not a verse to be quoting. In a hospital or in a funeral parlor. And it could be harmful to people. Somebody who's just lost a child. Well, you know, all things work for good for those who love it. You want to punch that person in the mouth. And this is exactly what Ilfez is doing. So, let me do a little assessment of Ilfez's speech. On the first reading, there seems to be a lot of sense in what Eliphaz says. The approach of many modern Christians is very, very similar to that of Eliphaz. Yet we need to remember that God was angry with Eliphaz because he misrepresented God to Job. So there are three major mistakes. Number one, 
Eliphaz was unrealistic. He didn't live in the real world. Goodness doesn't always pay in this life. It's not true that we follow up, that if we follow a given, I'll try again. It's not true that if we follow a given agenda, all will be well with us. Just look at the people in the Bible. Paul, Paul was, was given to the, one of the greatest disciples and Christ's servant. But he suffered one setback after another. Was that because he was unfaithful to God? No. He died at the hands of, well, we think Nero met his martyrdom. If you look at it from the world's perspective, Paul was a failure. But because we're still quoting Paul to this day, chances are they weren't. He wasn't a failure. And he's enjoying his reward now here in heaven. Number two, Eliphaz put God in a box. That's what I say. Eliphaz believed God must act in a certain way. God's actions had to conform to Eliphaz's morality and sense of justice. Really? I never want to be the guy that said, well, God has to act this way. Whoa, wait a minute. God can act whenever way he wants. And, and, and we can get into trouble that way. Well, this is the way it worked with me, so this is the way it's got to work for you. God's word tells us how God will act, but it's open for his. He can do whatever he wants. Do you remember when they accused Jesus of not being the Messiah because they had developed this theology. This is how the Messiah was supposed to be. This is how he's going to show up. He was going to kick the Romans out. And when he didn't fit that, he says, well, then you can't be Messiah. That's what they did to Jesus. They killed him. But he rose again because he was the Messiah. I don't want to be that guy that says, God, you have to only act this way to fit into my schema of who you are. Trouble is, my mind is so small and infinitesimal compared to the knowledge of God that if he wants to work a different way, I will step back and say, okay. Because he's God. And we get into trouble when we try to explain God to people, especially in suffering. That can turn out to be painful and hurtful to the people who are going through suffering. Job is no, just an example. And number three. He did not really understand what troubled Job. He was not privy to what happened in, between God and the accuser. Job was not so much troubled by his severe losses as by the fear that God had turned against him. And in fact, Eliphaz and his friends 
are saying just that to Job. God's against you because you've sinned. Job's like, well, I didn't sin. And his friends are saying, because this is what we believe about God, then you must be the sinner. And this is where we're going to go around and around in for the next few chapters. Somehow, for reasons unknown to him, he had forbidden his friendship to God. That was their idea. So, let's make this, what we're studying, real. Okay? How would you react to a friend? I mean, a friend of yours that might be going through what Job is suffering. Or even close to that. I wouldn't try to explain my friend's suffering. You know, Jesus never gave an explanation for the blindness of the man born blind. Disciples asked. Remember they asked that question? They said, was it his parents or him who sinned? Remember Jesus' answer? He said, neither. This man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Wow. Number two, I would assure my friend that he was still precious to God. No matter what befell him. That's a promise of God. I would pray for my friend and plead with God to make his presence felt to him in his trouble. David wrote in Psalm 23, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But sometimes we don't feel it. We don't feel God's presence. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, about the loss of his wife, one of the things he felt like God wasn't there with him. He didn't feel it. Jesus, on the cross, cried out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People like that. We can have periods of time when we're going through suffering, and we feel like God was not there. And that's what God's word is most important. You know what Jesus said? Never will I leave you nor forsake you. On the Great Commission, he says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We need to rely on the crosses. We need to rely on what we're hearing from God's word, not on our feelings. I would, also, I would also pray aloud with my friend and ask God to ease his suffering. I would just spend time with my friend, not necessarily speaking. When I lost my mom and there were some sad times going on years ago, I had some people from this church... After about two or three weeks, the friends quit talking to me about my mom. 
Does anyone to bring up something that was painful to me? But on the contrary, that's when I wanted to talk to my mom. But no one would do it. They would, they would see me and they would walk away because they didn't, they didn't want to bring. Oh, hey, how's it going? Because they knew I was, I was going through some hard times. The best thing I would have wanted more than anything else is just for someone to come and be with me. They didn't have to say a word. You could just hang out. Sometimes our presence with people who are suffering, just our presence is better than trying to explain the why. And finally, I would ask my friend if there was anything I could do to help. And then I would do it. That's what I would do if I was, had a friend like Job. Why? Because I'm so great? No, because I've seen the devastation the other way. And the book of Job is one of those things that can help us to treat and help be a service to those that are hurting, those that are suffering. I wish for you that you wouldn't have to go through any suffering. That's my worldly perspective. But you know what? As Jeremy brought up to us last week, there's going to be trouble. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And so we need to be prepared. Sometimes it's discipline. Sometimes it's just stuff that happens. But I also know in Romans 8.28, God can use anything to, for our good. You guys ready to study more, Job? Yeah, this is good stuff. Father God, we come before you. We thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these tough passages where we struggle. But yet your word remains true. Help us when we are faced with people around us that are suffering. Lord God, don't look at for us to try to defend you. Let's just be a loving example of kindness and empathy and sharing with those that are hurting. And if there's something we could do to help alleviate the suffering, so be it. As we love our neighbor as ourselves, and as we love you, help us to be better at that. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.